The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening, everyone. Bit of a tough act to follow, don't you? Wouldn't you think? Thought, uh, who would want to be me right now? Yeah, that was uh, terrific. Great blessing. Wonderful to be with you here this evening. And uh, Joe and I did not coordinate our wardrobes either before we came, in case any of you were wondering. I just picked them up this evening and thought, oh no, what? Oh, yeah. Anyway, I want to begin uh, this evening in talking about uh, classical Christian education. Really, I'm going to look at a survey of uh, the public education system in Canada as well. I'm going to begin with a passage from Colossians verse 1, or chapter 1 rather. This is the uh, reason that we believe that when we teach, the words that we teach, the things that we teach, uh, are not going to be affected by the worries and the travails of which Joe reminded us uh, in great detail and with great power. It's for this reason, the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because of this fact, what Jesus says elsewhere is also true. On you I will build my church, Peter, and the gates of hell will not prevail against that. That's what we believe. And so there's a hope for the church in this generation, and the hope is founded on Jesus. Nonetheless, I want to recount a tale of, uh, in some ways, a lack of fidelity on the church's part, in some ways, deceit on many good Christian people's part, and the decline that we have seen in the education system as a result. I want to begin with a, a little extract from a Newsweek article Back from February of this year, it was entitled, Harvard's Crisis of Faith, Can a Secular University Embrace Religion Without Sacrificing Its its Soul? It began with this appeal to common sense. He said, it doesn't take a degree from Harvard to see that in today's world, a person needs to know something about religion. We call this understatement in English. And the author's exquisite irony uh, became plain when she drew attention to the focus of her article, namely that the Harvard faculty had rejected, quite surprisingly, a proposal to mandate uh, just one course in religion for its undergraduates. They refused to allow this in spite of the fact that it was obviously relevant to the contemporary world. Uh, One commentator quipped that it exhibited the faculty's own peculiar crisis of faith. He probably had had in mind the decision made decades before to drop the words for Christ 
and the church from the university's famous motto, Veritas, truth. It was once truth for Christ and the church. Now it was simply truth. This was probably done to embrace a broader, more inclusive, a non-religious education. In our world today, it appears that this judgment of narrowness may itself have been the product of a faith perspective. To us, it's clear it's the perspective of secular humanism, which itself is appearing increasingly myopic and bankrupt and sterile. This observation about Harvard and the departure of uh, institutions of learning from the Christian faith is not alien to Canada. I think almost all, if not all, of the universities in Canada began uh, with a church foundation, with a confessional origin. And every one of them, uh, except those that have sprung up in recent years, like Tyndale, where I work, uh, have broken with their confessional origins, have departed from their statements of faith, and so forth. This is not the end of a sad tale of decline, though, nor the dying of the light. And Joe uh, alerted us to a few of these instances, just a couple of them. I'll give you another one. In 1990, in Ontario, all overt forms of religiosity were removed from the public school system in Ontario. And this was ironic. It was to promote tolerance and a principled separation of church and state that the last vestiges of Christianity, which till then had been a part of the status quo in public education in Canada, these would no longer be tolerated in the name of tolerance. There were objections at the time, of course, not, least, not the least because the, the, this phrase, the separation of church and state, is, is an American constitutional argument irrelevant in Canada. There is no threat of establishing a Christian church in Canada as the state Christian church. So what is with the separation of church and state? But never mind. We live in a culture that knows nothing of history. Why not import an irrelevant historical point and present it as the soul of wit? <laughs> and for many uh, Canadians, we are so acquainted to the parental intervention of the state and that includes Christians, that uh, it probably seemed an extension of our niceness uh, to be in the vanguard of multicultural and inclusive gestures. Or maybe it's just that we left the job to the experts, people who really know about education, people who have degrees in education. They know what education's all about. We'll leave it up to them. Or maybe we thought that Christians could still do their teaching privately or do it in the church. Uh, at the same time, we hear that pastors are being threatened with sanctions if they speak in pub public about uh, homosexual marriage. And uh, even private utterance, utterance in a church context, is being threatened. Some are, are afraid to marry uh, or to refuse to marry gay couples. There is no safe place when the government is uh, the religious authority. And, and most recently of all, uh, there are new equity and inclusivity policies, and they normalize what they euphemistically call alternative sexualities, and they threaten opponents with prosecution if they use hate speech. These are all euphemisms, uh, but they become so familiar that we let them wash over us. In what sense is this hate speech? And yet we, we accept it as hate speech. A hate speech in this case is simply applying a different moral judgment than the one that has now been declared to be the public policy.
now alarm bells are, are ringing. I think one of the... Uh, when Joe and I came here uh, this evening, drove up here, we were wondering what sort of crowd we would have. Uh, very pleased to see the turnout, and I think it is a testimony to the significance of the family that everyone recognizes. Uh, in education, I think that's even more the case, particularly with things like uh, equity and inclusivity policies, where teachers are mandated to teach alternative lifestyles irrespective of their own views. They must do this. What's interesting to me, I, I had to do some research on this topic, as you can imagine. Sixty years ago, there was an academic historian by the name of Hilda Neatby. Has anyone ever heard of Hilda Neatby? One. Good for you. I'm not surprised that nobody has heard of Hilda Neatby. Hilda Neatby was an important figure in Canadian history. She was a member of the very first Massey Commission, the forerunner to the uh, uh, Canada Council, the very first one, 60 years ago. And she said that in the public system of education, even those areas which are still termed democratic are losing the freedom which gives meaning to democracy because they are losing the sense of direction which gives meaning to freedom. This was 60 years ago, almost. For many of her generation, Dr. Neatby would be speaking uh, of the orientation of all true education towards Christ, in whom, there, in whom alone there is freedom. Uh, one wonders if she was writing today whether Dr. Neatby would, would end up in front of one of the Human Rights Commissions, or the Toronto Star Chambers, as I, I prefer to call them. <laughs> Why don't we start calling them the Toronto Star Chambers? Ridicule is a fine way of opposing ridiculous can't. These are not human rights chambers. Toronto Star Chambers. Now, many people are openly questioning uh, how it came to pass in a few short years that the freedom of religious expression and the ad adherence to a Christian moral character taught in schools is now being pronounced an anathema in the name of democracy. Since academic freedom can be traced at least as far back as the Christian liberal arts universities of the Middle Ages, and the practice of teaching Christian moral character was what the Christians uh, brought to the educational system as long as there has been a church and turned over Roman society, completely transformed it as a result. For 2,000 years, Christian parents have taught their children Christian moral character, and it has saved their societies from absolute corruption and ruin. Did you know at the outset of the Reformation, uh, something like, it's estimated that something like 60% of all people in Europe would have suffered from venereal disease. 60%. Joe just talked about uh, sin being nothing new. It is nothing new. And yet, there is a gospel that we have to proclaim. Reformation is always at hand uh, when we hold on to God's word. I want to begin my talk with a bit of an analogy here. And it's based on uh, a parable uh, I, I guess that everyone here is probably familiar with. It's from Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. As I say, it's an analogy. I'm not going to read it to you for, for reasons of uh, brevity, though this is not a brief talk. <laughs> Maybe next to Joe's it's a brief talk, but we'll see, we'll see about that. I shouldn't say that too early. 
But uh, it goes something like the wealthy owner of, uh, of an estate has two sons. The younger of the two sons demands his share of his inheritance from his father while the father's still living. And then his father gives him it, surprisingly. And the son goes off and squanders it in a dissolute lifestyle, only to resolve to return on his knees, begging his father's forgiveness. At which point, to our surprise and his, we find that the father runs out to him to embrace the son before he can even offer up a word of apology. And he celebrates the boy's return with unbridled joy. It's a magnificent story of the boundless mercy of a father towards an utterly thankless and profligate son. A child, uh, a picture that Jesus presented of the grace of God, the father towards the sinner. Now, I said this was an analogy. What, what the parable lacks, and this is not just because uh, it was this parable, all parables lack this, is any real sense of the passage of time. I'd like to, us to imagine that for a moment here. No doubt the prodigal son did not run out of money on the first day he left home. No doubt it took him a considerable period of time to squander a third of his father's rich inheritance. No doubt his actions would have seemed like the soul of wisdom to him when he first set out. No doubt he would not have been alone in his judgment. He would have a great many friends. And after all, how wise was this? He cashed in at a very opportune moment before his father had time to deplete his inheritance any further. This was economically very clever. He also surely, as I said, had, would have developed many new friends, far more than if he had stayed home on his father's family estate. He would have attracted many women of interest and uh, many friends who would be happy to deplete his fortune along with him. And all of them would have thought him a very rich and a very good man. They would have told him so until the point where all that inheritance was gone. At which point he even looked upon the pig's food with envy. And he became the now familiar portrait of a dissolute and immoral man. Similarly, the squandering of the legacy of a genuinely Christian education Enlightened by the gospel is not something that began recently, although it appears so. And it would not have appeared to be an act of dissolution when it first began. The democratic spirit that pervaded the development of public education in the 19th century in Canada, and throughout the Western world for that matter, were told one of the great strides forward in human history, in the public education system at any rate, is the development of public education. We would call this a bias in my, where I'm coming from. But one of the great boons to humankind is the development of public education for all. And this was predicated on bringing the democratic gospel of progress to future generations. Early on, I can't imagine that many would disagree with this. These democratic institutions were rigorous and uncompromising, and no doubt they pr produced impressive early results. There were many, many who received a good education who could never have afforded to do so, precisely because the state had power to tax and fund this education, terrifically expensive. Furthermore, the abundant spiritual and intellectual capital of the Christian faith would initially have allowed this to happen 
with great blessing to the many people who would have received this education. That's how it would have appeared when the prodigal son set out. It would have looked great. Public education, when it first set out, looked great. Very few opponents to it. And the blessings were perceived and, in fact, led forward by good Christians with good hearts. I don't doubt that for a moment. Now, just to orient us where I'm going to go with this talk, I'm going to begin by discussing the development and the decline of public education in Canada before moving on to sketch out, albeit briefly, how I think we can recover a Christian mandate for education for the family, just as Scripture commands us to do. As I said, seen from today's vantage, one may say that public education in Canada developed at the expense of the church, and indeed of the Christian faith. But any research into Christian or public education in Canada uh, will see a very different and more complex picture than that. Let me enlighten you a bit about that if you're, if you're not aware of that. When the public system began in the 19th century in Canada, by the way, I was publicly educated my entire life, public universities, public schools, and so forth, so I do not speak as somebody uh, ideologically opposed to it in that sense. When it began in, 19, in the 19th century in Canada, what was at stake was not whether the Christian faith would be brought to bear on education. Everybody who was a part of the debate at that time thought that it should be brought to bear and that it must be brought to bear. The question was whether the well-heeled, established church, represented by Bishop Strawn and the Family Compact, would continue to exert a stranglehold over education in Canada. Strawn and his party sought to present the mandate for education quite narrowly and exclusively within the confines of the Anglican establishment, which he represented. This was not just an ecclesiastical power move, it was also represented the hegemonics of the social and political elite of the day. Strawn represented the great and the good. It was an attempt to create an established church in Canada and an established church education system on Strawn's part. Now, the man given credit for opposing Strawn, a great hero to many, and creating a non-denominational public system in Canada was Egerton Ryerson. He was a Methodist. He modeled his new Canadian system chiefly on the one developed in Germany by Philip Melanchthon, Martin Luther's deputy. Stood for over 300 years to that point. Rich and deep was this system. So far from an immediate move towards secularization or the abandonment of the faith, the defeat of Strawn and the family compact resulted in a proliferation of denominational colleges at the University of Toronto, as they soon became uh, affiliated to at any rate, and a concerted ent uh, attempt by uh, the vast spectrum of denominations of the Christian faith across class divides to work together and in uh, Ryerson's words, to create a common patriotic ground of comprehensiveness and avowed Christian principles. That's the foundation for Canadian public education, according to Ryerson. In other words, the close relationship between the Christian faith and education, public education, was reorganized and extended across the socioeconomic divide rather than rejected. If you want a testimony to that, just go to Victoria College, 
for which Ryerson was the very first president. It reads, over the door, the truth shall set you free. Having said that, at the very same time, a note of darkness here, Ryerson's first report on a system of elementary instruction is full, chock full of quotations from the father of state education in America, a man by the name of Horace Mann, uh, who had similarly gone to Prussia and, and adopted its model of education for the United States. And I'm afraid that the Canadian system Ryerson instituted is susceptible to the exact same deficiencies. Mann was a Unitarian. Uh, his emphasis was anthropological, and he understand the, understood the core message of Christianity to be liberation. Not salvation, but liberation. And he based his views uh, more on natural law on, and on the inherent perfectibility of humanity. Man, belie uh, man believed that humanity was by its nature good and that it could be perfected as a result almost infinitely. The doctrine of the fall almost drops out entirely. So rather than fostering a dependence on God as our Lord and Savior and orienting education towards recovering the ruin of our first parents, to quote John Milton, one of my great favorites, uh, in his tract on treatise on education, uh, Tom, uh, Horace Mann fostered a dependence on the state as our Lord and Savior, and he oriented education towards a common natural divinity that acknowledged no innate sin other than the God-ordained bonds of family and of faith. One commentator explains the significance of this romantic progressivism, because this is what it is, romantic progressivism and its view that there is a spark of divinity in man. It comes by way of analogy once again. And I'll read this uh, extensively because it's so good. God, being divine, needs no motive outside himself. God is self-contained and self-sufficient. He's responsible to none. He is accountable to none, and he has no value or standard other than himself. He swears by himself. Every doctrine of man which asserts or implies man's divinity strives to give man the very same divine autonomy. Rewards and punishments are tokens of external authority and, account and accountability. If man is responsible to God, then his sense of duty and his sense of satisfaction are dependent on his relation to God, on his rewards and punishments the rewards and punishments that are received from the sovereign God who is the arbiter of all his life. If, on the other hand, man is a creature of the state, then his sense of duty and satisfaction are dependent on his relation to the state. As Marxist theory asserts, and rewards and punishments must be forthcoming from the state. Men must be sent to slave camps or be proclaimed people's heroes. When man asserts his divinity and his natural rights, then he must either be an anarchist or he must be asserting a community of rights and a socializing of man in order to direct and coalesce his common body of divinity and rights. The result, which we see in our day, is a sovereign and deified state 
which punishes, punishes citizens who fail to understand their rights and rewards those who exalt the common divinity, the common will, the will of the people. The parenthood of the state was a familiar idiom in Horace Mann's thinking, even as much earlier the motherhood of the church had been used to assert the nursing rights of the institution over men, and, end quote. Now, this idea that man, irrespective of his familial status, is like an orphan who discovers his true parents in the state invariably came at, at expense of his natural family. And Joe spoke just compellingly about how the natural family is not based so much on nature but rather on covenant. Note that the new transgressions, the, the ills of the family are presented as blood relations as opposed to acts of free will. Note how this is a direct inversion of, in fact, what the covenant is, which is an act of free will. This is why it's important to reassert, once again, the significance of covenant relations with respect to the family and of marriage. The state understands the family as its great rival. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this, but as a specialist in 19th century literature, I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't pass this up. Uh, in the 19th century literature, and you'll be familiar with this at least tangentially at the very least, we don't see the, the, the heroism of 19th century literature is not that of the classical age. We do not see a strong and virtuous man faithful and true, resilient, uh, willing to sacrifice himself, giving himself up for his friends. What we see is the heroism of the orphan. Surprising. This uh, heroism is perhaps best captured in William Wordsworth's famous line, that the child is the father of the man. Sounds like a very clever way of putting the chicken versus the egg thing. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did the child come first or the man? The child becomes a man. On the other hand, the man begets the child. Which came first? But that's not what Wordsworth is saying here. He is saying that the child is effectively fatherless and the child looks within himself to find out what a man is and what a man is to be. He doesn't look to his parents. He doesn't look to his God. He doesn't look to the church. He, he looks to no one other than himself. And we will see that this is a familiar pattern of heroism from, in fiction from the 19th century all the way to the present day. You don't believe me. Think of the fiction of Charles Dickens. What is the prototypical Dickensian hero? It's an orphan. Think of uh, the comic book heroes of the 20th century, which are now being made so popular that there are a series of films out on them. Who are they? Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, all orphans. How about children's fiction? Harry Potter. I'm afraid in some ways, in a, a similar way, not quite the same, even the uh, fiction of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, we very rarely see families being portrayed. We see isolated individuals who have to look to the superpower, superhuman powers within them, the great goodness that they have, and then they need to govern themselves. As it said to Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. So you have to know yourself what is the right thing. Only you can find out the answer, and if you can't do it, no one can. They all begin as orphans. 
This is the scandal at the heart of modernity. The substitution of the heroism, for lack of a better word, of the good and loving Heavenly Father. Remember the image from the prodigal son. The good and loving Heavenly Father running to embrace his wayward and broken son by that of a fatherless individual who himself is lost in a solipsistic, nihilistic, self-begetting world, yet through some mysterious, innate power that he has within him, he's going to rescue the world. For what purpose, we're never told. Superheroes uh, are, need to save the world, but we're never told what they're saving it from or what they're saving it for. There's a bad guy, but this is not salvation. At any rate, uh, Horace Mann's romantic educational philosophy became established in the form of the scientific and systematic educational philosophy of John Dewey. Most of us will know Dewey from the Dewey Decimal System. But Dewey's uh, power and influence over modern educational theory is second to none. Dewey uh, systematizes and presents in scientific uh, clothing uh, Horace Mann's romantic perspective. It is a clear alternative state religion. It espouses a belief in the basic goodness of the child's soul. And thus, like Horace Mann, it rejects all traditional educational attempts to instruct, to civilize, to train in righteousness as artificial, arbitrary, external ways of educating that have no place in the modern world and have no place in the state educational system. They are not just artificial. They are not just external. They are absolutely detrimental to a child's healthy sense of self-development. They must be removed. Now, Eric Froebel, the father of the modern kindergarten, by the way, it's a romantic invention. Kindergarten does not exist in the Christian church historically. It, it starts up in the 19th century. And the, the whole purpose of the kindergarten is to cultivate play. Play is supposed to be at the center of all education. Children have to enjoy themselves at all times. Eric Froebel presents the quasi-theological aims of of this path of education in these words. I quote, The purpose of teaching and instruction is to bring ever more out of man rather than to put more and more into him. For that which we can put into him, we already know, and possesses the property of mankind. And everyone, simply because he's a human being, will unfold and develop it out of himself in accordance with the laws of mankind. On the other hand, what yet is to come out of mankind, what human nature is yet to develop, that we do not yet know. That is not yet the property of mankind. And still, human nature, like the Spirit of God, is ever unfolding its inner essence. Now, the principal means of bringing out of children this innate goodness, the goodness that we have not yet seen in the world, is to unleash the child's creativity, to tap into his imagination. Two words that have gained terrific meaning and force in the Romantic movement. In fact, before that, uh, they almost have, uh, I wouldn't say they have no meaning, but they have nothing like the contemporary force of meaning. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this, and this is not going out on a limb, this is simply a matter of fact. Before the Romantic writers, early 19th century, it was considered blasphemous to use the term creativity 
for what human beings do in the arts. It was blasphemous. God alone creates. Uh, the term creative writing, which is taught in our schools uh, more and more, nothing wrong with it per se, but the very term creative writing doesn't appear until the beginning of the 20th century. When the human soul is conceived as inherently godly, then the, the use of the imagination, the development of human creativity is not just uh, a new thing, it's a necessary thing. That's what we want to foster above all. What sort of creativity is this? This is the true path of moral education. Never mind the churches foisting a patriarchal and oppressive form of education on us. Let's have true godly creativity. Let's look within ourselves. Has anyone seen the movie The Dead Poet Society? Good. I want to make an illustration from it. I was hoping that that would be the case. This is romantic progressivism portrayed vividly and compellingly. It is compelling. It presents the liberation of a young man from the control of a particularly stern and authoritarian father who wants the best education for his son, but we learn is forcing it upon him in a dry and lifeless way, irrespective of his son's wishes, by sending him to an elite school in the Ivy League. It's a beautiful landscape, old buildings, uh, rowing, fantastic. You just want to be there. Four stated pillars of this school, tradition, honor, discipline, and excellence. But it's presented as a jailhouse, despite the appearances. The liberator-in-chief is played by Robin Williams, brilliantly, I might add. A man who is romanticism personified. What does he do when he teaches? He enters the class whistling the 1812 overture by Tchaikovsky, a revolutionary paean of overturning. This is the forerunner to the first thing he does as teacher. He takes them out of the classroom, brings them into the hallway, makes them look at the picture, look at the kids in the class, or the, the kids who came here before, before you, and he tells them that you are powerful individuals and you need to seize the day while you're still young. Carpe diem. You know, he keeps whispering it. It's like an enchantment. Great stuff. I, I love it. It's a terrible film. I love it. <laughs> and he, what, what the other thing he does immediately, he makes them rip pages out of their te textbooks, the, the pages in their textbooks which speak of, of, of rules and objective knowledge, knowledge with respect to poetry. Rip it out, he says. First, second act as a teacher. Third thing he has them do is stand on their, t on their desks to express their nonconformity. And freedom. Now it's interesting they conform to the command to be nonconformist, but then we all know what, that this is typical of nonconformists anyway. They all wear and dress the same way and do the same things in a nonconformist way. And then ultimately they obey their teacher in doing that, right? You know, be the nonconformist, do what I say, and get up on the desks. And then he encourages them to write their own poetry rather than learning that uh, of others who are masters of the craft. And then ultimately, they, they resuscitate the Dead Poet Society, which their beloved teacher had once been a part of. And then that leads them to drink freely, smoke freely, attend parties, publish offensive uh, articles, go against school policy, eat, and even kiss girls. And of course, this, uh, 
This seems rather slight to us. And it's supposed to seem slight because what comes then is the draconian school that says, enough of this, we're going to stamp this out. And dad comes in and tells the boy, that's it, you're out of here, you're going to a military school so you can be prepared for Harvard. And then the boy takes his life, the poor child. It's meant to appear draconian, but the, the promotion of a romantic educational paradigm is, is fully embodied in the Dead Poets Society. If you haven't seen it or it's been a while, watch it again. In 1953, as I say, Hilda Neatby, I mentioned her earlier, a member of the 1949 to 1951 Massey Commission, the forerunner of the Canada Council, a member of the establishment, if there are any, if you're on the Massey Commission, she wrote a scathing critique of the romantic ideas in education that were pervasive in Canada. Now, this is in 1953. This is the good old days, at least I thought. This is 1953, and she said, the books, by the way, if you're interested, it's called So Little for the Mind, an Indictment of Canadian Education. And she notes that uh, having originated in the U.S., these romantic ideas had come to dominate the educational establishment in Canada and had done so for at least a generation. She also mentions John Dewey, with no little irony at that. She says that he's the Aristotle of our day, as is irony. His acolytes, she says, are profoundly influenced by the new study of psychology and the increasing applications of Dewey's scientific techniques with unscientific optimism to every sphere of human activity. And her description of the average progressive school of her day is worth repeating. She says, It is a place where all children find sympathy understanding and encouragement. There are no terrors for the dunce. There is demand for no feverish application from the good scholar. Learning is free and unforced because it is believed that children work best when they are happy and retain most firmly what they've learned when they learn gladly. Her quote, the whole child goes to school. Actually, she's quoting them. And when he arrives, he's accepted as an individual of the first importance. The, the school, again, she's quoting them, the school is child-centered. Now, the reason I quote that is because in her day, the mocking tone, the condescension, the attack on the language that is being used by educators would have struck her audience. They would have said, that's ridiculous. My bet is that when she says there are no terrors for the dunce, that we instinctively recoil and say, that's a bit mean. When she says that uh, the, the whole child goes to school and that the school is child-centered, we would say, well, how, how would it be otherwise? Why would, what's wrong with that? This is a sign of the spiritual decline that has taken place in the 50-odd in the years between Neatby's indictment of the educational establishment and our own day. All good teaching is, first of all, focused on God, and secondly, it is teacher-centered because the teacher is the means of transmitting not just information but character, instruction, guidance, and example for that matter. You can't ask a child to be the center of the educational system when the child needs to be educated. But this does not strike us. 
because we are, I think, because we are so indoctrinated. I mean, when I read this, I disagree with it profoundly, but I thought, mm, that's a bit harsh. Maybe I'm too Canadian. Oh. But the whole educational method she indicts is that of Horace Mann. And the end of this education is freedom. Remember I talked about man's emphasis being liberation rather than salvation? That's the purpose of the church is liberation. She talks about freedom everywhere here, and so do they. This is a freedom which is cultivated and made dependent upon the state. The child is confronted with activities related to his life outside the school rather than tasks related to learning. He's led by discussion. He's, he's asked for his opinion rather than being driven by dictation, by a lecture. He's given real discipline as opposed to formal discipline. The rod drops out of the educational system and, and by natural means to self-discipline which becomes the new object of all moral training. Now, Neat be objected to this philosophy on, of education on three grounds. She denounced it as anti-intellectual, anti-cultural, and amoral. Now, as an, a professional educator, I cannot conceive a more damning critique. There could not be a worse critique. Our whole educational system is anti-intellectual, anti-cultural, and amoral. This is terrible. There ought to have been a wake-up call. There was no wake-up call. One person know, knew who Hilda Neatby was. Uh, this past year, uh, three scholars came out with an indictment of the current education system, and they, they cited romantic progressivism as the real problem to be addressed. This is 55 years later. All three grounds, the anti-intellectualism, the anti-cultural uh, mandate and the amorality were related to a new type of freedom it advanced. In its anti-intellectualism, it freed the pupil from the exercising, training, or discipline of the mind, which would have been required if he'd had to know a body of facts, if he'd had to memorize things. He actually had to know things. He could be tested on them, but he's been freed from that. In its antipathy to culture, the, the pupil has been freed from the bondage of the past. The teacher, too, is the beneficiary of this freedom. With his gaze firmly set to the future, the educator freed himself from the contamination of the sins of the past, and he felt free to denounce it. This was what happened in the classroom. He, he, he condemns his, four, his forefathers, and his fathers for that matter. And in its amorality, the pupil was freed from making judgments of right and wrong actions and freed from acting rightly or wrongly. The only moral requirement was that he be open-minded. Open-minded. That's the new morality. And liberated from having to judge their students' actions, moral character, or achievement, the teachers retreated into therapeutic language, the language of desirable and undesirable outcomes. Desirable attitudes, desirable responses, right and wrong, pass and fail, these are part of an antiquated vocabulary, not, not to be used in schools. Now, the cumulative effect of it, and this is 60 years ago, the cumulative effect, need be observed, is that the pupil soon learns the meaning of desirable and thinks, quite rightly, she says, 
that in a de democratic society, he has as much, much right to desire as anyone else. And thereby, even the elementary discipline of establishing rules, which the child was required to keep, comes immediately into question. If desire is the ground for all other things, then if I desire something, which is contradictory to what the authorities say, then why shouldn't I have it? You've just said desire is what this is all about. And I'll read to you her conclusion about this cultivation of anti-authoritarianism. In a democratic society, which must ultimately rest on the morality of individuals with every opportunity for and incentive to immorality, this seems strange. Again, understatement. Strange. She could have used far stronger language. Now, what she does not know, and, and what every parent who sends a child into the public education system will have observed, is that it also positively encourages a spirit of rebelliousness against all authority, particularly parental authority. And it's certainly arguable, I think it is the case, but it's certainly arguable that this is not an, an unintended consequence. It's the explicit aim of the educational system to be anti-authoritarian particularly directed towards the family. Because after all, who are the real educators? The professionals, the teacher, the person called teacher. So the, it aims at freedom from familial influence. And it, it pathologizes the age when this comes to roost. The chicks come home to roost in the, pay, in the age which sociologists invent. It's the age called adolescence. doesn't exist. It not acknowledged in any period of history, human history before this. Thirteen, the teens. This is adolescence. This is a period in a person's life when they're neither a ch child nor an adult, we're told. Well, what are they? If you're not a child, you're not an adult. What is the in-between phase? I would say it's, it's nothing. It doesn't exist. Well, no, you're a teenager. You're an adolescent. Well... That means that you're not accountable to your parents, but you're also not accountable for yourself. Well, this is a creation of an anar anarchic form of personhood. I say it's a pathology and it's a sociological construct, which we simply accept. And in fact, we're told that should we hinder the desires of the child, we will be oppressing that poor child and violating his or her human rights whatever the expression of the form of these desires takes. Now, since Neatby wrote this indictment of Canadian education 60 years ago, it'd be difficult to maintain that anything has changed other than that new idealistic approaches to education derived from the very same bankrupt educational philosophy have been brought forth. The roles of the school seems to be more in attacking than in preserving and transmitting culture. And as a consequence, yesterday's, immor yesterday's immorality is today's morality. So the sad conclusion at the end of this is the strong Christian teleological assumptions of Ryerson's vision for public education in which, and this is the vision for educators of, uh, throughout all generations for millennia, drawing the past, the present, the future together, assuming that the past foretold the present and the future would fulfill the prophecies of the past, this has been broken. And with it, I submit, the prodigal son has now 
returned home. Penniless, defrauded of his heritage, steeped in immorality, his very lawlessness as a sign of his autonomy, a restless wreck of a man, tormented and broken. And nihilistically, he believes not only he has no father that he should answer to, but that he can only gain his identity by continuing to attack and kill any authority figure which would tell him what to do. And this is why fathers and pastors and anyone who represents a father figure is relentlessly attacked in popular culture, rather through ridicule. Just watch television or watch a movie. Tell me how many good father figures there are. If they're not absent, they're ridiculous or they're abusive. But one way or the other, where are the good father figures? Teachers who are male are going to get it in the neck. Fathers are going to get it in the neck. Pastors are going to get it in the neck because they have been schooled to act this way. Just watch a, a, child, a children's uh, television program and see how the children talk to the adults. And all the original benefits of state-sponsored education are fleeing, if they've not already fled, along with the light of the gospel that once quickened it. In its wake, we note that suicide rates are skyrocketing. Standards of achievement in uh, in schools are dropping almost faster than our educators can reduce them. (laughs) To show improvement. We're always improving. It's progress, remember. You've got to have improvement. Well, if you keep dropping the standards, then they get better. Rampant promiscuity is the rule, not the exception. Children are routinely drugged. According to new prescriptions, new uh, prognoses, ADD. I, was, I, I ran across a statistic that by the time, this is an American one, Americans are better at stats than we are on these things. By the time they graduate from high school, some 40% of children in the U.S., are on some sort of drugs or have been on some sort of drugs to, to stabilize their attention deficit disorder or various other pathologies. If you'd presented that in a, scientific, a science fiction novel 60 years ago, you said, no chance. That is science fiction. The reason that they're drugged with medicine, which the state is happy to pay for, of course, is because they need to be attentive in class to hear the things that they're not learning. Now, the sense of meaning of life and the sense of social cohesion across classes and nations that goes deeper than mere tolerance, the vision of Ryerson, the vision of Horace Mann, and probably the vision of John Dewey, back when Christian capital was at its height and the prodigal son had just left home, this has now all been dissipated and squandered. And the chicks are coming home to roost. Now the question to parents today, Christian parents today, is whether they are going to respond to the clear, uh, the clear scriptural mandate to be fit to the faithful to take responsibility for the education of their children. The prophet Jeremiah offers this counsel. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. And walk in it and find rest for your souls. Jeremiah 6, verse 16. I think this offers us light in a dark place. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the ancient path, the good way that Jeremiah talks about. I realize that 
time is moving on. I don't want to go on longer than Joe. After what I said early on, embarrassing. I'm rapidly running out of time, so I want to submit a way forward out of the current situation, and I want to make a case for classical Christian education. I do want to say a few words of apology for what I've just said, because many people are publicly educated, involved in the public education system, products of it, teach in it, send their children to it. So this is by no means a reflection on those who seek to be salt and light in this system. I think the Christian teachers in the public education system have been slowing the decline into barbarism. Hilda Neatby could see the writing on the wall 60 years ago, but it's taken 60 years. you, You have been lights in a dark place. I was reached by a light in a dark place in a public university. I'm greatly thankful for that. But it seems to me the barbarians are inside the gates and the city's been overrun. Nor is it my interest or intent merely to critique the public system, let alone to present a reactionary viewpoint against the uh, state system. And I certainly don't want to criticize parents who don't have the financial means to send their children to have a Christian education. Their means don't provide it. Perhaps they're the product of broken marriages that Joe has talked about, perhaps through no fault of their own. They just don't have the means to do this. I would offer a critique of the churches, however, who have allowed this to happen on their watch with no voice spoken out against it. I do think that something needs to be said there. So what distinguishes a Christian education then? And this is going to surprise you a little bit, but it will make sense, I hope, in what follows, is a focus on the liberal arts. A liberal arts curriculum is the basic form of education. It has been from time immemorial. It's a base with which we cannot dispense. Its purpose, as the name suggests, is to provide a course of education for the free person. Liberal means free. Arts is the way, the way of the free person. Now, as we've just seen in my, in my depiction of uh, the, the educational philosophy of John Dewey, what is at stake is what we mean by freedom. What does freedom mean? For the state educa- educator, it's freedom from all restraint or control. Uh, our forebears used to call this license, not liberty. Useful distinction. And uh, what they preach is antinomianism, autonomy, Freedom from anyone else's control. For the Christian, the only true form of freedom is rooted in something that Jesus talks about in John 8. I'll read to it, read from it to you. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. At root then, a classical Christian liberal arts curriculum will be rooted in freedom from sin, which is the counterpart of a person's grateful 
conformity, and embrace of the Word of God. Freedom from sin, clinging to the Word. By clinging to the Word, we are freed from sin. It, it fills us, it enlightens us. This is the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Ryerson, Jesus first. A classical Christian education then is predicated on the Word of God. Our education will entail conformity to the Word of God and grateful obedience to Him and all the truth that He's disclosed about Himself, about humanity and about the universe, all that was, all that is, all that will be. This is possible because of what the prologue of John's Gospel teaches us about the role of Jesus, the Word of God in the creation of the universe. And I quote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not made anything that uh, was... was <laughs> were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Oh, gosh. I massacred that. Now, these, uh, these words sound somewhat abstract, but they can't be more practical or relevant to our education. And the reason is this. If all things have made, been made through the Word of God, the divine logos, that's the word in Greek there, that means that the world and everything in it is logical. It carries the attributes and the character of the logos. It's logical. This means that it's comprehensible. How is it comprehensible? Not according to itself, but according to the character of God and His law and His Word. Then we can understand it, not by looking at the world. That's the natural uh, way. No, by looking at God and His character and His Word, then we can understand ourselves and the world around us because all things have been created by Him and through Him. Our facility for language, which the liberal arts cultivate, finds its right in, in, in our obedience to the founder and perfecter of our lives and is thus an aspect of our conformity to him. It's not an abstraction like uh, the Platonic Logos, as the Greeks and Romans who invented this classical liberal arts curriculum would have assumed. They assumed that they were conforming to an abstraction. The Christians who came across the liberal arts curriculum understood that this could be adapted and used for their purposes. Much as uh, Moses and the Israelites were told when they left Egypt at, to go into the promised land, he said God told them to plunder the Egyptians before they went. Why? You can use the gold that they have used to worship idols for good use, for divine purposes. What did they do with it? Well, they did two things. One is they created an idol for themselves. Danger to all educators. We can create our own idols, but they also use it as an inlay inside the temple with which they would, in, in which they would worship the one true God. Now, this means a number of things, and I'm going to list here. These are attributes of all good Christian education. First of all, it, it involves the glory of God. In accordance with Scripture, education should have the glory of God as its highest goal. To God be the glory. Secondly, all Christian education should involve the parents. The education of children has been entrusted to the parents. Read Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and following, or Ephesians 6, verse 4 and following. 
The school should serve as a ministry, not to the children, but, as, but to the parents who have been entrusted with the task of instructing their children. If you're going to send them to a Christian school, you serve the parents. It's their, it's their responsibility. If you want to homeschool and you're able to do so, good. But it finds its origin and its culmination in the reality of the triune God. Therefore, every aspect of education is ultimately theological, even if we don't call it theology. Theology can be brought to bear on every field of knowledge. Fourthly, it entails the lordship of Christ in all things, the universal lordship of Christ, and that Christ is the lord of the educational task, and that all things cohere in Christ. That's in the passage in Colossians, which I read at the outset. Fifthly, there is a centrality of the gospel in all educational endeavors. It is Christ, clothed in his gospel, who rescues and, and transform us, transforms us. It's not the state. It's not the parent. No human being can, can transform us or rescue us. The educator has the great privilege of serving the one true God who acts and works through us. What a wonderful thing to be a Christian teacher and to know that you are the spokesman of God himself in your task. And this is not just for educators, it's for all paths and tasks. But this is a great calling. Christ, clothed in his gospel, rescues and transforms us. And, he, and that includes the rescue and transformation of our minds. Sixthly, God is the author of all truth. As the Lord of all, God is the author of all truth, and truth always has its ultimate source in the triune God of Scripture. Don't talk about truth and abstraction. Jesus does not come in abstraction. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, is the divine logos. He is a person, a person of the Trinity. We cannot abstract truth from this. Truth has a relational aspect, for instance. Seventhly, truth having its origin in God is coherent and it's beautiful. Good, a famous passage. I am the good shepherd. It actually says kalos, agathos in Greek. I'm the beautiful shepherd. There's something winsome about Christ which draws people to him, something attractive. Christian education should also be able to capture the hearts of our students. And it should draw them. It shouldn't be rote learning in the worst sense. I'll talk about that just briefly in the conclusion. Finally, the goal of education, not finally, but penultimately, the goal of education should be that students know and love God, the author and goal of all knowledge, and they become wise, they become virtuous and Christian persons who subject all knowledge to the universal lordship in Christ. And finally, education and action go together. A Christian education should form students who are not only knowledgeable, but who act upon and live in accordance with such knowledge. They should have good moral character. Now, the classical Christian education teaches this, I believe, most fruitfully. It is tried and tested and true. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. The trivium, which is the foundation for the classical liberal arts curriculum, which includes grammar, logic, and rhetoric, is just a vehicle to achieve the nine aims that I just talked about. 
But I believe it's the best way. Never mind, I believe. Christian educators for 2,000 years have been in agreement upon this until the dawn of public education, when new methods uh, and new approaches took, took hold. And these closely match the capacities and the desires of children as they develop. When I speak of the classical trivium, you think, oh no, Latin? Yes, Latin. That's too hard. It's a dead language. Actually, it's not too hard. There are ways of teaching that make it palatable, even attractive. And I'll tell you why. By the way, it's not just, the, it's not just what they're learning, but... Uh, but children are taught how to think in the trivium period. And it, it works according to the stages of life they find themselves in. The grammatical stage, this is for students up to about the age of 11 or thereabouts. Dorothy Sayers, who wrote a terrific essay on this, calls them pole parrots at this stage. In other words, they ha- children of, a young, of young years have this innate ability, incredible to see, to learn and absorb and retain information uh, in voluminous ways. You and I cannot dream of learning at the rate and with the... uh, They're they're like sponges. If you take a child to a foreign country, they learn the foreign language within, within weeks or months, whereas we as adults are going to take years if we ever master it at all. Little kids are like parrots. They learn, they mimic, they repeat what is presented to them. And they derive great pleasure from chanting and reciting and memorizing because it's their natural way of learning. They imitate those around them at a very young age. This is not cruelty. It's what they want to do. I bet you that the number of people who are ADD are ADD because they're being asked what they think about something. And what they think about something is they want to go out and play outside. That's what they think. I don't want to sit here. That's what they think. Can you blame them? I think the ones that are being drugged up are the sane ones. That's the grammatical stage. Early on, the the logical stage, this is around grade 6. I don't have a grade 6, a a child who's grade 6 or so forth. Around this period, I remember it being in grade 6, uh, children naturally begin to question more. <clears throat> and they understand the relationship between the facts that they've learned. They, they, be, they move from the what to the why, and they're always asking why. <clears throat> and they can see contradictions between cause and effect. You said this, and then you did that. Argument. This is the logical stage. You teach them logic at this point. Because now they want to know why at all points. And they can see hypocrisy. At a very, it seems like a young age, but it's just, it comes with it. So you teach them gr- the grammatical stage. You wrote learning, but through singing, through chanting, through memorizing, through games, but it's all doing the same sort of repetitive things. You get to around grade six, you have to start uh, uh, being, you teach them how to ask questions. That's not the right, that's not the right question. This is the right question. You teach them to solve problems. You teach them to argue logically. And the development of sound reasoning requires a thorough knowledge of the foundation of what they've learned already, the basic facts, the grammar of the subject at hand. And so it builds on the grammar stage, and then it leads to the rhetorical stage. This is around grade 9, high school. This is roughly. 
Children may progress beyond that. There are some are, that are, uh, are mature beyond their years. Having obtained a strong foundation of knowledge, they've got grammar. They know a lot of facts. They've developed critical skills of logical argumentation. They enter into what Sayers calls the poetic phase. At this, this is the, the rhetorical stage, actually. This is the time for maturity. Note that it's the teenage years now, grade nine. Oh, this is adolescence. That's when they're lawless, law, lawless, isn't it? They're not children. They're not adults. They're sort of in between. You have to let them, you know, t- uh, follow their natural path. That's what the educators tell us. Well, if you've built with a grammatical phase and a logical phase, they're not going to buy into this fuzzy mush. They're going to want to make arguments. They're going to want to formulate them. They're going to weave together everything that they've learned, and they're going to be a craftsman. They're going to speak persuasively. They're going to think persuasively. They're going to apply this to all fields of knowledge. You know that uh, we, re- we read with just awe and wonder how people of the early or the late 19th century with a grade 8 education know more than people who graduate from university as undergraduates. Have you ever seen those? They go through online every once in a while. A test for, for grade 8 students from a century ago. If you read the, 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 the amount of knowledge that they had, it's breathtaking. This is available to our students this very day. Simply, and it doesn't matter if you haven't been class, classically educated, you can learn to do this. You can insist that your teachers do this. You can uh, establish schools that will do this. I hate to make a plug at this point, but uh, it does seem logical. It does seem rhetorical as well, built on the grammar of what I've just said. <laughs> uh, we are going to start up a, a classical uh, Christian academy uh, at Westminster, uh, hopefully 2012. And... Uh, we would love to see others emulate this uh, because the state of public education, uh, I think, is, is in a very bad, bad way. Now, I, I know that there are exceptions to this, but uh, it's, not just the, it's not just the teachers, it's the textbooks. You can't just have a bad textbook with a good teacher. It's th- there's a contradiction there. When they come to the logical phase, they'll see the contradiction, and they're turned off. There's a crisis of authority. But the, uh, the thing that I wanted to uh, remind us in conclusion is that what Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is a truth we need to hold on to with both hands in our day. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.